Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Living It with Chris Waddell. I am with one of my good friends, great racer, 13-time Paralympic medalist, Jeff Adams from Canada. Uh, Jeff, I, I loved watching Jeff on the race, on the course or on the track. And really, we will get to this to what he did so well, but he had a bit of genius on the track and, and we will get to that. But let's go back a little bit and... Can you tell me what what were you like as a kid? I mean, I don't. I, I've only you know, known you as an adult. So, were were you the same as a kid? Or yeah, I feel like there's not a lot of difference between my childhood me and my adult me in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, but I was a I was a really precocious kid. I mean, I was I loved sports. Anything I could get my hands on, I did. Um, you know, I played hockey uh, with my friends on the street and on a rink. And, you know, I'm Canadian, so it was pretty natural sport for me to pick up but um i'd also been identified as a potential high level uh performer in gymnastics so even though i was seven eight years old i was training with a uh, gymnastics club near the small town that i grew up in that ended up turning out they turned out a ton of olympic athletes and uh, so i was training with people who went on to you know compete at the olympics in gymnastics and learning you know the basic movements that uh, you know really dictate whether or not you can perform in any sport you know gymnastics is so transferable to anything yeah that strength that that kinesthetic awareness there there's so many things that are proprioception and all these things that are just so important in gymnastics but also in whatever else you're going to do it's a great foundational sport and this is but i mean you were young right i mean this is up until nine years old right yeah i had a cancer when i was an infant that um uh, the radiation therapy that I got ended up burning my spine, but the effects didn't take didn't occur for uh, eight years, uh, eight years after the treatment. So I got the treatment as a one-year-old. Uh, the radiation burned my spine, just microscopic little burns. And when I was, I actually got tackled um, on the school grounds, uh, a pretty hard tackle, and it caused one of the burns to to burst, uh, and the bruising and the bleeding caused the spinal cord injury that I had. And so, so what happened? Like, how did, how did this manifest itself? Cause you weren't preparing for it, right? It was just one of those things. No. And it came out of the blue in, in a lot of ways because, you know, I got, had the cancer as a, as an infant uh, and then walked away from it. So when I started getting these symptoms, not being able to, um, you know, not being able to move my feet the right way, cause it progressed. Like as the bleed uh, happened, it progressed, it got worse. Um, and so when I went back in the hospital, they were like, Oh, he's got cancer again. And so I was put onto an oncology ward uh, and they started doing cancer tests. Um, they had no idea that they, they just did because of the span of time, they just didn't connect the dots uh, between the radiation therapy and the, uh, and the, the bleed and the paralysis that it was causing. That's amazing. So it's effectively, it's like scar tissue effectively that you had that then burst kind of thing or. Yeah. The radiation caused what's what they're called um, uh, multi-cavernous angiomas. So it's a malformation of a blood vessel and it's caused either through genetics or um, as a result of radiation. Those are really the only two things that can cause them. Um, so the, but they didn't, like I said, they didn't connect the dots because it had been eight years and it's such a rare thing to, to occur with radiation therapy, but they just didn't. Um, and then the testing at the time, like they weren't CAT scans the same way that there are now, you know, it was in the late seventies. And so the diagnostics just weren't um, as, as, as refined as they are today. So we spent a long time in the diagnostic process and, and uh, they, they, 
for a long time thought that it was a you know the cancer had come back and was manifesting itself by pushing on my spine or something like that but the the, the burn was actually a mouth it caused malformations of, of veins um and that they those bursts and so it was a bleed more than anything that caused the, the it was a bruise basically that caused the spinal cord injury Interesting. Now, but it manifested itself in weird ways too, right? As a, as a little precocious kid, you used to bound across the kitchen and these kinds of things. And all of a sudden you couldn't make it, right? Is this, is this how it happened? I mean, where you start seeing this and your parents are looking at you like, what's wrong with this kid? What's going on? Well, that's, a, it's a, that's a bit of a funny part of the story. Cause I was such a, a little actor. Like I, the, I just loved performing. That's part of why I love gymnastics is the performative part of it. And so my parents thought I was faking it just for attention. Um, and so for the first, you know, week or so, they were like, pick your feet up, like, stop doing that. Um, and so I was, and I kept saying like, I, I can't, I can't do this. And they finally brought me in and, and uh, in the, it was just coincidental timing. They brought me to the hospital. They realized something was going on. They didn't know what they checked me in and overnight, I went from being able to kind of walk around to being completely paralyzed. So that didn't help my case because my parents were like, come on, like we check into the hospital and they can't even walk. And so it just didn't, like, it, I, I didn't do myself any favors with the diagnostic process because it was, uh, it was so confusing to begin with. And then my personality just, because I was a joker, right? Like I was, I was constantly playing practical jokes on my brothers and my parents. And they're just like, oh, this is, this is a really bad joke. Like this is not funny. This isn't stop that. Yeah. yeah. Now, racing was such a huge part of what you did. Did you, did you know that you would race? So like, I mean, wh what did you think? At nine years old, you go from being able to walk to suddenly not being able to walk, being a gymnast, being a hockey player to what are you going to do? Did you know you'd race? Did what was that available or? No. Well, I mean, it, like a lot of people who get injured, you know, you go into the rehab center and you're, and you're pushed to do sport of some kind. Um, because for people with disabilities, it's, it's even, you know, maintaining your health is even more important. Sure. Um, and so I was pushed to do uh, basketball because that was the, you know, what everyone did. Uh, and so I did basketball, but I was really lucky. There was a therapist named Ann Shugart who um, uh, was also into track and field. And so she encouraged me to try, you know, I was throwing javelin, like out in the back. Um, the, well, these are like 50 pound, 50 pound stainless steel hospital chairs right this isn't yeah yeah so when i first started playing basketball like we basically were playing in our everyday chairs um and the chairs started getting better and better i was right on the cusp of where they started to build chairs of uh out of aluminum and so on um, but my first racing chair was given to me by one of the basketball players and it was a stainless steel chair with big back wheels um but i and when i was playing basketball i was always fastest one on the court and one of the coaches at one point said you know you should really go try racing because you might be good at that too um, I was pretty good I was a pretty good basketball player I was close to making the national team uh, when I was 17 uh, and didn't make the national team when I was 17 I was really upset about that because I thought I should um, and part of the decision to go race was that whoever crosses the finish line first wins like there's no judging you don't get selected for a team based on some uh, you know subjective evaluation of your your potential is just you know you cross the line you win or you lose and so when I was trying to decide what to do it just seemed like a, I could control the outcome a lot better um, because I could select myself onto a team by performing as best I could and winning races whereas in basketball 
my age, you know, I was only 17. I was probably outperforming some of the existing players on at least the provincial team, maybe the national team, but I wasn't getting selected because of my age. And so I was like, well, have fun guys. I'm going to go race. (laughs) Yeah. I'm done with this. So 1980, you were, you're, you, you became paralyzed around 1980, right? Yeah. 79. 79. So then Terry Fox was running across Canada in 1980 did that have an effect on you and how you saw yourself i mean you were a young kid so you don't understand everything obviously but yeah it was um it was i think it affected everyone in canada like it was just such a a major major event um yeah so terry fox was a a guy he lost his leg to cancer um, and he was an athlete he was a volleyball player um in high school very very talented athlete um, and ended up playing basketball at a very high level as well, wheelchair basketball at a very high level as well after he lost his leg. Um, but he decided to do a cross-country run to raise awareness and funds for, uh, for cancer awareness and research um, and started on the East Coast, um, you know, dipped his, his prosthetic leg in the, in the water in the ocean on the East Coast. And the plan was he was going to run all the way to the West Coast and dip his prosthetic leg in the West Coast. Uh, the ocean on the west coast and sort of tie the country together um unfortunately his, his run was cut short um, about halfway through in thunder bay uh, where the, the cancer returned and made it impossible for him to finish the run um, but we still do <clears throat> you know i think the the runs have expanded uh, around the world i did one in dubai one year when i was there racing I happened to be there racing i did the terry fox run in dubai so they, we've got these runs around the world now in in memory of uh, Terry Fox and, and to commemorate his efforts to raise awareness of money. Cause he just put himself out there. I mean, just sweat equity to raise money for cancer research. And I read something that said that he's, that the organization has raised $750 million for cancer research. So pretty amazing what yeah, one person can do. Yeah. It was it's a, one of the most successful campaigns that I know of. Um, and he's, he's vintage, like his, his vintage is around uh, when, uh, Rick Hansen was, you know, racing and, and, and those guys. And he was part of, of um, a bunch of really good basketball teams. And I don't think he ever raced, um, but he was, a, he was an incredible athlete on top. And you mentioned Rick Hansen as well. So Rick, Rick was a racer, but he also, he went around the world to raise money for spinal cord research as well, right? Yeah, so Rick did his Man in Motion tour. I think that started in 85 or 86. Uh, he spent a couple of years traveling the world. And did a lot of things incorrectly went against the trade winds and uphill for most most of the week. It made if he had done a little bit more planning, as the story goes. Anyway, he could have made the, the trip a lot easier on himself. Um, but he left at the peak of his career too. Like in '86, he was um, you know challenging for Boston, racing against George Murray and, and uh, Andre Vigier and those guys, and, and winning. Uh, he won the Orange Bowl marathon a couple times, and, and he was you know the Pan Ams. He was just ferocious, um, and he gave, he left the circuit to go do this you know, awareness campaign for spinal cord research um, and ended up really, really destroying the shoulders in the process and just never came out to race. Um, so that was, uh, but, but his campaign has been, you know, his foundation still exists, does a lot of good work, uh, especially in the political f- uh, spheres. Were, did those guys become heroes for you in any sense or shape how you looked at yourself as an athlete or what you wanted to do or? Not really, you know, because I was removed from them. Um, The the people that I really looked up to were people that were in my life in in more than a fleeting way or a tangential way. Like uh, uh, Flo Akima was a basketball player who 
really took me under his wing. He was a national team, probably the star of the national team at that point, and, and really taught me um, a lot of values about sport. You know, not just about basketball, but about respect for your opponents and, and uh, putting everything you, you are into the sport and really dedicating yourself and just, you know, things like that the kids need to learn. Um, you know, and, and so he was coaching me when I was 15, 16, 17 and really um, made sure that I understood those fundamentals and, and things that really matter about sport. And then who were your heroes on the racing side? I mean, the guy, the, the biggest figure uh, in my racing life would have been Andre Vijay. Um, you know, I, when I came along, he was pretty close to the top of his game, uh, although he stayed at the top of his game for a decade or more. Right. So French-Canadian guy, won Boston, variety of other things. Yeah, he was, he was most well-known and probably best at the marathon distance. And, and the, the harder it was, the better it was for Andre. Like if it was uphill in the snow against the wind, he'd win that race every single time right it's just he's just the toughest guy um I think, I think probably to this day the toughest racer i've ever met um possibly toughest athlete but he was just i remember one time we were at training camp one time and um a bunch of the quebec guys were, were really talented and we were there for in, down in florida for training camp and andre was destroying us in every workout and guys were getting tired of it right uh, so <laughs> Uh, Mark Kessie, who was another one of the Quebec racers, put WD-40 on his push rings before we went for the, the training session. And it didn't do us any good. Right? Like he still destroyed us, um, but he got mad, which hurts. So he was pissed off. And, and you know, even with this, you know, I don't even know how he was pushing, but he still hurt us badly and then was mad about it as well. Um, but it was just, you couldn't do anything to the guy that would, that would hurt him. It was incredible. And to explain some of that too, the uh, the push rims are are rubber coated, and you have at that point it might have been a while ago, so it might have been that you had you had taped gloves like handball gloves or whatever, and it's it's really the friction you're not grabbing onto the push rim. So if the push rim is slippery, which happens in the rain and those kinds of things, then you're slipping. And Andre, it it had no ill effect on him, just on the rest of you. Yeah, it'd be like taking the soles off of someone's running shoes. Like you're running in, in dress shoes, like they're just slippery and you can't get a grip. Like that, that was what we did to him. And he still destroyed us. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was well, he good. also, he won the Boston Marathon in 1987 when there was the big crash, right? So he was, he crashed along with Kanab, who I think was the first guy to go over and, and was part of that huge crash down in that downhill, which, which effectively up until recently, they had a controlled start at Boston to, to minimize the, the risk. But he, he fell over, crashed, got back up, and actually won at Boston that year. Yeah, yeah. And I remember the first time I beat Andre was at Nationals uh, in the 1500. The first time I beat him in the 1500 was at Nationals. And there was a, a crash with about, I want to say, like, just going into the turn with 200 meters to go and two guys in front crashed and Andre and I were, were behind those two guys. He was on the inside, I was on the outside, and I was able to exit to the outside of the track and avoid the crash. And I was just like, oh, my God, there's a crash. <laughs> You're like, I got away. I got to, like, put everything I have into this. So I put my head down, and I was just going as fast as I could, 200 meters to go, hoping that I was going to win this race. And, and I heard him behind me. And 
just this like grunting, you know, and it was getting closer and closer and closer. And it was the most scared I've ever been <laughs> in my racing career. But, and I ended up beating him. But the video afterwards was of the crash and the two guys go down and there's video of me like, you know, squirting out the side and he grabs the gut, the frames and throws them away and goes in between them. To <laughs> yeah, like it was, yeah, he's, he's a legend. He was a superhero and, and it really was, it was, it was the grunting and snorting and you knew when he was around you. Yeah. He was so like, yeah, he, he, like you said, he's just grunting all the time and, and making this noise all like pro, pro tennis players do, you know, but you just, you, you knew exactly where he was all the time. I don't know if he did it in part two to intimidate people, but it scared me. Well, that partially, I think gets to one of your greatest talents. I mean, you said you squirted out around, around this crash watching you i always thought that that was something that you did well that you were you, you were so slippery on the track nobody could ever really box you in is that what you considered your greatest skill or what did you consider your greatest skill on the track yeah i think you're right I, like like I, every race i won i won on tactics like i never really won a race if if it was just pure uh, you know, fitness or pure strength. It was always being positioned correctly at the right time, not getting boxed, putting people into places that, you know, were bad positions for them. Uh, and I had a, a, an ability to, once I got better, because I could out sprint a lot of people, I could control from the back. So people were so worried about me at the back of a pack that it would change the dynamic of a race. And so I developed my talents to, to, to do that specifically to do that. And I made a decision to be less fit than some of the guys who were really fit, but faster than anyone else. And so there are a lot of times like going through the, the, the prelims um, when guys would just wind it up and go as fast as they can, as fast as they could. Those were the races that were the most difficult for me. Like I, like often I would barely get through the semis into the final and then dominate the final because the, the, the strategies and the tactics are just so different from the pro preliminary rounds to the final. Uh, and I was more suited to racing in a final with a lot of top guys than I was to racing the prelims. And I also didn't do very well when there were races where there was only one or two other top guys in the race. So when I was racing at sort of not the major events uh, where a couple of guys could team up and just go really, really hard and hurt me, um, that was when I was at a disadvantage but when there were a lot of guys and everyone wanted to win uh, and the tactics took over that's when I, I had my best races you weren't opposed to fighting for your position as well <laughs> no I was not <laughs> very nearly got disqualified a couple of events because I was not <laughs> so like in 96 in Atlanta you won in the 800 meters you you returned the favor to Scott Hollenbeck who beat you in Barcelona in the 800 you know, he was on the inside in Barcelona. You were on the outside just barely. I mean, he, he said the finish line couldn't come up quickly enough that you were, you were catching up to him. But at 200 meters in Atlanta, 200 meters to go, there looked like there was a little bit of hand fighting in there as you guys were getting into the, into the turn. I think it was elbows more than hands. But, yeah, there, <laughs> there was some contact. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I mean, I'm, Scott's probably one of the, the guys I'm closest with and was closest with on the circuit. We would elbow each other on, on the track and try and crash each other if we had to. But uh, we'd train together as well and, and you know, we'd spend time together off the track.
track. Um, but that was, it was one of the best rivalries I've had. I had in my career as well. He, um, like you said, he beat me in Barcelona by seven one hundredths of a second. Uh, had the race been 20 meters further, I probably would have got him like I was catching up to him. Um, but I didn't, and that's how races work. Uh, and then in, in Atlanta, we we never met until the final, uh, but we were in opposite semifinals, and he broke the Paralympic record in, the, in his semifinal. And then two minutes later, in my semifinal, I rebroke the Paralympic record. So it was just this like rivalry that was, it was such a great story. Um, it kind of hurt even, I, I gotta say, like it was in Atlanta where he was living, his family was there, like it was a big race for him. Uh, and I beat him by, I think it was like you said, eight or nine liners of a second, just barely beat him. Um, but it was such a great rivalry, such a great race. Um, and and, and uh, yeah, I, I hit him hard <laughs> with 200 meters to go, um, but he was trying to crowd me. <laughs> so that's how racing goes. <laughs> It is. out. Well, that was part of your mystique too, right? That was part of the image that you cultivated where you said you'd rather, you'd rather crash than lose. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, I was, I'm little, right? Like I, you know, I weighed when I was racing, I was racing at 118 pounds, um, you know, five and a half feet tall. And so some of the bigger guys, like the guys who are close to six feet tall, and 140, 150 pounds, um, could push me around. If I them. And so, I just, I could never let that happen. If, I, if it happened once, it was going to happen all the time. So um, I was probably overreactive, um, but I did that because I, I saw other little guys get pushed around. I was like, that, that just can't happen because uh, I'm going to lose races if I let that happen. I'm just laughing because I'm actually recalling a story that you recounted to me in Birmingham at the World Championships in 98. Yeah, that was, so Joel Janot is probably like, he's a mountain of a man. And in the 5,000 semis, he, he really wanted to put me out in the semis because he knew, and he knew if I got into the final, uh, that was where I was, I was the strongest. So he was trying to eliminate me in the semis. And what he did was when I got behind him, he would drop off the back of the pack and force me to chase. And so he did that a few times in the, in the early going. And then on the, sec, on the last one, he hit his brakes and I slammed into the back of him. It was actually pretty dangerous. Um, and so I went around him and tried, and I was like, look, enough's enough. And so I tried to push it into the pack and, and take care. We ended up both progressing to the final, but on the backside of the track, um, I had words with him. And uh, I think he thought I was going to slap him. I, I wasn't ever planning on doing that, but he, he flinched away from me. And it was, it was maybe one of the most, like, best, you know, events of my career where this, he's like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, and would have torn me to shreds. But... Yeah, like one arm is is longer than you are tall. He was a monster, yeah. And then the fact that he thought I was going to slap him was just like... Well, at least the story that you recounted to me, I think you did say that you were going to slap him in French as well. I might have have threatened to. I might have done that. I can't recall. Well, I'm going to stick with my version of the story because it's the one I've been telling. (laughs) And I think it really worked. Yeah, I got to check the statute of limitations in France for... uh, threatening assault <laughs> exactly well it was it was in the uk so it was probably fine so right. i think it's okay but uh but actually this this is a bit of a diversion because you do you do speak french well uh you're fluent yes. in french and there's a reason why you're fluent in french though right am, am i correct in this I, the legend yeah. has it and i don't know if it, i don't know if you told me or not that that you get kicked out of your grade school and your mother was the principal of your grade school and you had to go to the french Catholic school is that right? 
Yeah, that's pretty close. There, there was for sure a discipline discipline issue when I was growing up, and uh, I, like I said, I was always trying to get into as much trouble as I could. But um, my, I was getting in trouble at school, and my parents had heard that the French school in the in the community that I grew up in had better discipline, uh, and so they decided that I was going to go to the French school for discipline. And uh, I don't know if it worked or not. Um, but I learned French. <laughs> Is this getting wrapped with rulers and those kinds of things? It was, yeah, it was, it was that. Corporal yeah, punishment. Yeah. Actually, yeah, corporal punishment when we get hit by hit with rulers and stuff like that. It was like old time discipline. Were you worse after, after you ended up in a chair? I mean, were you, were you sort of acting out more or was that something that was just, you know? I don't think so. I think like, cause, cause as soon as I like sport really took over and I think it would have taken over had I been, had I been not, not, you know, whether I, I was disabled or not, I think sport would have taken over. Um, I just realized, you know, when I was in my early teens that if I wanted to succeed, I couldn't be a screw up, right? Like I just had to have to train hard. And, um, or not a complete screw up. I yeah. Mean, you know, yeah, yeah totally sort of manage your time, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, sport really played a big role in that. In, in helping me to sort of make priorities and make better decisions or the best decision that I could at the time. So. Was sport also the thing that where you expressed your voice was, was it where you developed who you were and could demonstrate, could continue to perform? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it would be interesting to see what would happen if my career was, you know, 10 years further on in the timeline than it was because we didn't get a lot of opportunity to to tell our story because the coverage just wasn't as good as it has been in the last you know number of years uh, and we really struggled and I think my career a lot of it was spent trying to garner attention for myself to so I could get sponsorships uh, but also for the sport and to raise awareness about um, disability in general and you know, the rights of people with disabilities and patient rights and things like that. And so I was always trying to use it as a platform. Um, I don't know if we really had that much of a platform, to be honest with you. you know, when I was racing, it was a lot more than now. Uh, athletes have much greater ability now to use the sport as a vehicle. Well, it's, it's generational as well, right? You look at a guy like, like an Andre Vigier who, who created some of his equipment to uh, you know, to be able to, the chairs went from, you said you had a four wheeler to now you're far more aerodynamic. And, and in a lot of ways, it's uh, a lot of ways, it, it looks like a lot of people are, are become part of their chair. You know, it's a, a racing chair. It's not necessarily, it, it, it's, it's not necessarily something that's an addition to it's, it's sort of like all included and and, and it's progressed to that point, but then you have to go and continue to push it in your generation and the next generation's you know, benefits from that, right? Yeah, and the equipment part of it was one of the most interesting things for me because the nature of the sport, you know, I spent, you know, I grew up, I, you know, when I was nine, I uh, acquired a disability and, and things changed, right? Like people look at you a little differently. You, you can't do the things that you used to be able to do. People have pre, pre uh, you know, stereotypes. Uh, that they rely on when they're trying to make decisions about you. And the, the, the equipment really seemed to me to be more than just a leveling of the playing field because we had a bunch of big people, uh, you know, who in Canada especially, who played 
wheelchair basketball who were able-bodied. So we had this reverse integration happening. And from the equipment point of view, it really did more than level the playing field. Because when you're racing, having, you know, smaller legs, which most guys who are, most people who are paralyzed have, you know, lets you fold yourself up into this more ergonomic position. You're carrying less weight. Um, you know, there's a lot of advantages uh, to being disabled when you're talking about racing chair. And so it was this really interesting thing that happened where the stereotype of being less able than in whatever context was really turned on its head. And in a purely physical way, being disabled gave you an advantage in wheelchair racing. And so we had these people who were able-bodied or, or even the people who were less disabled, who you know had, had uh, low spinal cord injuries and could walk around, who actually were disadvantaged because they were, you know, they didn't have the, the exact right disability. And so it was interesting where the disability itself became an advantage in a purely physical way, in a performance way, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know, I don't know of anything else in in the world that you can that, that, that's similar. Well, and also your friends who say, hey, I'll come for a jog with you. You know, your able-bodied friends. <laughs> yeah. Well, even on a bike, like I had a bunch of people, you know, when I was at my, at the peak of my career, they couldn't keep up on a bike, right? Like, so yeah, it was, it was pretty funny. Yeah, that is fun. I did, I did the main marathon one year and I was just like, one, I was, I don't know, there were like three or four wheelchairs or something like that. It was just close. And I showed up and this guy who was a volunteer, he was a bike volunteer he said well what are you what are you looking to do and I was like oh you know I'm looking to do like 140 150 somewhere around there you know in that in that area and he said oh do you know how hilly this is I said okay well I'm that's still what I'm looking to do and that guy ended up dropping him at like mile 12 on his bike you know and it's one of those you're like okay this is and that I think is one of the beauties of sport is that one it's the bond you're trying to do the same thing you know, we're trying to go as fast as possible where like your track athlete friends look at you and go, yeah, okay. I totally understand exactly what you're trying to do. But it also that flipping it on its head where it goes, oh, you're, you're actually faster than I am. Now, in looking at your stuff, I don't know if this, if you'd consider this, I mean, you had, you had a great event in Sydney where you won in the 800 and the 1500 first, the only time you won the 1500 at the Paralympics, right? That's right. Yeah. But Gothenburg in some ways was, was a different kind of race for you, right? And kind of a breakout the, in 95, the world championships. Yeah, that was really, it was my breakout race. Um, you know, I'd had some good performances in 92 for silvers. Um, in 94, I won the world championships, uh, Commonwealth Games, but I'd never really like at the IAAF where everyone was there. Uh, and everyone really wanted to win the 1500 at the, at the Commonwealth Games. Um, that year was really fun because Philippe Capri was sort of my main concern in that race. Scott was in the race as well, um, but he wasn't having as good a year as, as some years he's had. Um, and so Capri was really on my mind. And he had beaten me. We had raced four times um, that year before the IAAF World Championships. And he had beaten me every time. And I was trying to figure out how to beat him. And I just couldn't couldn't figure it out like he would just somehow beat me at top at the best part of my race like he would out sprint me and so i was like man this is like he's beating me at my own game like what am i gonna do and my coach told me that i had to beat him psychologically and i you know i was trying to figure out how to do that and what that really meant and uh, i wasn't i didn't have any great ideas until the day before the race 
uh, they let us out onto the warm or onto the stadium track to set our compensators. So we set our steering devices um, for each, depending on how the curvature of the track is set up. You may have to adjust your steering. And they let us out on the, the, the stadium track the day before to set up for that. So just describe what that means. So you're going along the straightaway and then you hit the compensator. Yeah. So there's a steering device compensator on the chair and, and you, you, they're set for either straight or turn left because that's all you have to do on the track. And so in the straightaway, you can set that pretty much anywhere, but each track has a different curvature. So you need to custom tune the, how much your chair is going to turn uh, for each track. And so. And to your speed as well. Right. Yeah. So, and that was a mistake a lot of people made is that they set their compensators and steering devices for their warm up speed instead of their race speed. Um, so it's a really, is a really, really critical element of making sure that you're going to have a good race. Uh, so they turned us loose on the, on the stadium track. And I had noticed when we got there, that they had already set up the metal podiums and I got an idea. And so when, instead of getting in my chair and warming up, we only had like half an hour. I waited until Capri was warming up. And I went across the track. To, I timed it so that when he was coming down the straightaway, I basically cut him off to go into the infield. So I knew he had to, I knew he noticed me doing it. And I went into the infield and got up on the gold medal podium and crossed, crossed my arms and waited until he came around the next time and stared at him as he came by. And I could see him trying not to look at me, right? Like he's trying to, he knew I was there, but he's trying not to look at me, trying not to look at me. And just at the last second, he glanced up and, uh, and looked at me and I pointed at him. Um, I got down and did my warm up, and then uh, in the in the bus on the way back to the village, he uh, he was trying to, I guess me, you know, trying to trying to defuse it, and so he said, "Hey, I must have felt pretty in French." He said, uh, "That must have felt pretty good getting up on the, on the gold medal podium. You've never done that before, have you?" And I said, "I remember this clear as it was day." I said, "Well, it's the last time you're ever going to be able to say that to me." And just the look on his face, I was like. I just, I just won. <laughs> but then you did an atypical race there as well, right? Well, you were, you were at the front, you were at the front in lane two on, on lane one uh, in, on lap one. I mean, this is, nobody's used to seeing you at the front of the front of the pack. Yeah. And it was really the only thing I hadn't tried that year. Like I had tried boxing him. I had tried surging. I had tried all the other, like all these other different things, but I had never tried to go to the front and, and lead and control. And I took the sprint out. Like I was typically, I would start sprinting with 200 meters to go, 250 meters to go. And I think I opened up with like 500 meters to go and just took it by surprise um, and was able to keep them on the outside and just push them as wide as I could. But it was, it was everything I had. And actually, and we raced twice more that season. He beat me both times at the end of it, but I, I put it together on the day of um, just by, a, by psychologically affecting him, uh, and then by doing something that he, that he absolutely didn't expect. And you could see in that last 100 meters that he was really falling apart too, that his form was falling apart. He's bouncing the front wheel all over the place, and you were just bulletproof coming through and went, what, like 40, 45 seconds or something like that for that, for that final lap? Yeah, that was the fastest lap that I think I had ever done. Um, first time I went 45 on a closing lap and, and I did it without, I, I didn't draft a foot of that race. Like I was sort of on Scott's shoulder for the first lap or two, but I wasn't in a proper draft. Um, so it was, uh, that was one of my, I think that might've been, man, looking back, that might've been the strongest race in my career. It, it looked like it to me. I mean, I've seen you race a lot and just, just watching that, that race, it was so different 
than, than what you've done. Cause nobody's used to seeing you at the front and they're like, okay, Adams is at the front. What are we going to, what, what, what's wrong with this race? What's wrong with this picture? So everybody's yeah. thinking back there and, and, and it was, it was a huge change and it, it really was strong, but then to be able to put your fastest lap for that last 400, when you've already been at the front and, and you actually, you pulled away in that last hundred meters too. Yeah, I was, it was, yeah, I was really strong that year. Um, the, the French guys repaid me the year after though, cause they kept me out of the Olympic final. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I might've been, uh, might've, might've been off a little more than I could chew. Um, but that's, but that's it, like, that's, that was my career, right? Like it was, I didn't make finals the next year at the Olympics after having probably the strongest race in my career in 95. Um, and it all came down to tactics and being in the right place at the right time. And I was in the wrong place at the wrong time the next year and didn't make finals. And, and I guess that's part of what I loved about racing is that you just never knew. Like I, I never expected to win in 95, but I for sure didn't expect not to make finals in 96. Um, so it's, yeah, you just never knew it was going to happen. Right. And that's the thing from 88 through 2004, there was a wheelchair demonstration event, 800 meters for the women, 1500 meters for the men, 1500 meters then being the marquee event on the track for the men. And what they would do is they would take the, the, they would take the best athletes. They would do all the quarters and semis elsewhere and just bring the finals. So the final eight athletes to the event. And, uh, and so that's what Jeff's talking about is missing out on in Atlanta, which, which had to be heartbreaking. Right. I mean, that was, that was because it's on, it's in North America. It's a, it's, it's a big showcase. And I was in shape. Like I was in really good shape that year. I mean, I won the 800 in in Atlanta against Scott. So, you know, same track, same guys, Um, you know, the eight and the 15, you're in equally, you know, if you can win the eight, you can win the 15 and vice versa. Um, and I had made finals. So I, I qualified my first international 1500 meters that I qualified for was actually the Olympic final demonstration event in 1992. And, um, I qualified for, so this is, so here's another example of why people either really liked me or really didn't like me is that I, I'd never made a final in the 1500 meters internationally and showed up to the trials in, uh, Louisiana and New Orleans that year. Um, where everyone in the world would, would show up to these qualifying meet, uh, races and then only the top eight would go to the Olympics. And so I showed up to the qualifying meet trying to make the finals of the 1992 Barcelona Olympic demonstration event uh, with the Olympic ranks tattooed on my chest. And I'd never been a final, right? Like, so, so I was, you know, and, and I, like I could see the guys like Mustafa and Vijay and all these guys that I was – genuinely in awe of and afraid of but like showed up with the Olympic rings anyway and they were looking at me like rookie man like what are you even thinking and and I ended up making I qualified for the finals by six or seven one hundredths of a second I was the last one to qualify and I only qualified um on time so I was the the fourth place finisher in my semifinal and was faster than the the fastest loser in the other semifinal and qualified, so skin of my teeth. And you were what, 21, 22 years old then? 21. 21 years old, yeah. Yeah, so you're just this young punk, brash young punk who goes and tattoos the Olympic rings on his chest. Yeah. But then pulls it off. Yeah, and that was, I mean, it was, and that really set the tone for, 
I think the rest of my career, I was like, look, I'm going to do this. Um, I didn't always do it, but you know. But was that part of the mindset of like, like I'm going to be fit? I mean, you put in the work, obviously, but at the same time, that that things could happen on the track, and and that you were you were going to you're going to be the most brash one out there. Yeah, there was never there was never a question that I wasn't gonna. I wanted to win every race, and I was gonna try and win every race. Um, That was, I think that that's what I mean by set the tone. People were just like, yeah, he's not gonna. He's not going to show up and, and not be, you know, not try as hard as he can and do everything he can to win. Or back off from, from whatever, whatever fear or whatever, you know, worry or whatever risk of, of you know, dismemberment or these kinds <laughs> of things. Yeah, people, and that's the other thing too. Like people knew that I would, I would crash um, and I wasn't afraid to crash. And, and if you're not afraid to crash, then people know they can't push you around, so. Yeah, it's mindset for sure. Did you covet anybody else's skill set? Like, like if you could go back and say, "Oh, you know, I wish I could have been, I could have had his skill set." I mean, obviously, you you manufactured, you 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 developed your skill set or honed it to fit what you did well. But would you have traded it for what anybody else did well? I think if I if you could pick and choose, I think Scott was one of the, if not the most talented athletes on the circuit ever uh he had great toss but he was also just so relentless um and i didn't have that real like i'm gonna continue to hurt myself endlessly and even if i'm not gonna win like if i knew i wasn't gonna win i would i would tend to to back off scott would just continue to hurt himself until the very end of the race uh and i just didn't have that kind of element um and if he had been healthy if he was able to stay healthy healthy i think he would have had a, a spectacular he had a great career but he would have had a spectacular career um he, he battled with shoulder injuries a lot of the time and, and that really kept him from winning a bunch of races that he probably should have won um and blanchette was um you know, just in terms of pure athletic ability um like just mind-blowingly talented um so craig blanchette double amputee just i mean he was like he was what like 105 pounds and was like benching like 330 or something like that when he first came on the yeah, scene or something. Yeah, I think he was a bit, a bit heavier than that, but he was, it was like a triple, yeah, he tripled his own body weight in the bench. Like it was crazy how strong he was. Um, and his acceleration was just like blink of an eye. He was at top speed. Um, and, and, but again, like I, like I beat him a bunch of times and it was always on psychologically. I always beat him. If I ever beat him, it was only because I beat him psychologically. Well, you beat him on his track at the Prefontaine Classic, right? Hayward Field, one of the one, one of one of the greatest tracks in the world at the University of Oregon where where Nike was born and that was 95 as well, wasn't it where you beat him that on that been, track? Yeah, that would have been 95. He um so we had, so I was staying at a hotel, at the same hotel as Scott. Uh, and the way that race worked was Craig was, it was the Nike International Prefontaine Classic. And Craig was sponsored by Nike. He was sponsored by uh, Quickie Shadow, the, the racing team. And he had a couple of other sponsors that were all contributing to this prize money uh, and bonus money that he had access to. So the, there was race prize money 
and then there was bonus money that only he had access to from his sponsors and so his i think it was like a, a magnitude an order of magnitude more money that he was going to win from his sponsors than the, the prize money and so he flew in a bunch of guys and i i were you one of the guys he flew in I, I, I was there. Yeah, I was there. I, yeah. I had a better view of the race <laughs> when I watched it on my computer than I did when I was actually in the race. But yeah. Great. But he flew out. Like he had. What do you Briggs have was there. Briggs, and Neitzel. Hollenbeck, Neitzel, Jacob. Yeah. So yeah. it was a sea of, you know, quickie shadow uniforms or quickie, I guess, at that time. Um, and me. And, and I went up to Craig at the beginning of the race. And I was like, look, man, I'm in. I'm in great shape, um, you know, and I don't want to destroy you at home, and you know, but but I need to make money on this race. Uh, so I'll, <laughs> You're I'll just apologizing. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'll lead you out, and, and we can. He's like, No, I think I got this. You know, I got my guys here. They're gonna pull me around. I was like, All right, um, but I'm in shape. Like I'm just saying. And the day of the race, like, and that race again, I I did a lot of leading from the front. I I just hit him with surge after surge after surge uh, that he wasn't expecting, uh, and ended up winning that it was a mile race and then beat him on his home track, uh, took away his world record uh, and took away a lot of prize money from him that he, he didn't make any money that day. So it was a tough day for Craig. And I think that was the first time he'd ever lost at that race. And he had, I mean, Craig was brash as well, right? He had, he had at one point had, had won that race and unzipped his suit and had a Superman emblem that it, that uh, Connie Hansen, that that Kevin Hansen's uh, wife had had done in like you know in like makeup and lipstick and stuff like that. I think you know so 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 Craig had his brash moments as well. Yeah, he and I were. I mean, I think we had a lot of mutual respect. We we certainly do now. Um, but at the time, it was you know who could be. Uh, it was an immovable object and an irresistible force, basically, on who had the bigger, the bigger brash or ego at that point. I think he, I think he might have had, even had an upper hand on me. Well, and also who could back it up too, right? It didn't matter how brash you were. Hundred percent, yeah. You yeah, had yeah. to get to the finish line first. Yeah. So after after the games, what what why did you decide to climb the CN Tower? So it was a couple of things um, that that. We did that in 2002. Um, so you're still a, competing. Yeah, but I had a, a wrist injury. And so I wasn't training at, at top capacity. Um, and I knew I needed to take a, a year off racing. Um, maybe not necessarily a year off training, but I needed to um, tone things down a little bit in terms of training and racing. And so I had gone into a friend's birthday party and had gone downstairs into a place in Toronto where the birthday celebration was happening and, and uh, was asked to leave because um, I was a fire hazard. And so, and, and. Can you, you know, describe how top, you go downstairs? Yeah. So I um, basically going down, I just hold the hand ring, handrail uh, and lower myself down a step at a time. And to go back up, I turn around and pull myself up by the hand ring on a, on a sort of reverse wheelie uh, going up each stair. And so I can go up and down stairs independently in my wheelchair uh, and the owner of the bar didn't realize this and came up to me and, and told me that or he was or care yeah uh, and told me that he didn't want me to be downstairs at his venue because uh, he wasn't the venue wasn't accessible and because it wasn't accessible he considered that I was a fire hazard being down there and asked me to leave and so I I laughed because you know what do you what else are you, you know I'm gonna argue again his own bar um, 
So I left, but I took all my friends with me, which, you know, you've met my friends and they probably would have paid his rent for the, the month. <laughs> <laughs> bad decision, bad decision. Yeah, yeah so we, we went somewhere else to drink that night. Um, and then I went to my brother, who's a, a lawyer, a litigation lawyer, and talked to him about it. And as any good litigation lawyer does, he encouraged me not to go to court, um, but to try to figure out a way to resolve the issue. And, and what we decided to do was um, an event that would raise awareness to, to just to sort of highlight the idea that, you know, sometimes people are able to do things that you don't expect them to be able to do. Uh, especially people with disabilities, and uh, to raise awareness for the need that despite that, uh, we need um, better accessibility, better physical accessibility, so ramps and elevators, things like that, and to, to broadcast this message and to raise money for a kids' um, outreach program that was administered by Variety Village. Uh, I did a, a, a climb of the CN Tower, which is, I think most people know, uh, Toronto has the CN Towers, was the tallest freestanding structure in the world at the time, and had 1,776 stairs uh, that were in the inside. It was basically a, a, an escape route uh, in case of an emergency, but I climbed those stairs uh, in a specially modified wheelchair and did an event that, like I said, raised awareness and a bit of money for, uh, for accessibility awareness. And so this, this chair you used like a, like a crutch on one side and the, and the railing on the other side and kind of did, did dips, is that what you did or? Yeah, it was basically, it was a pediatric sized wheelchair that I put little 18 inch BMX tuck wheels on the back and converted the axle to only roll backwards on uh, unidirectional bearings. And so when I went up the stair in the chair, I would lift myself up using the railing on one side and a little crutch on the other. And then the, the wheels wouldn't roll forward. So I couldn't roll back down the stair. So I'd roll up each stair, basically doing a dip, um, to, to get myself up each, each stair. So they were ratcheted and you did 1776 dips. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It was, it was a long day. <laughs> Over how many, uh, how long did it take you? Well, it's funny. Like, cause you know, the, we got into the stairwell and there's no, there are no landmarks. Like they don't mark the, the stair. It's just an escape route. So the only marker is at the halfway point. And so we didn't really know where we were uh, until we got to the halfway point. And I did the first half in, like 45 minutes but we had a, a, a media conference scheduled at the top for three o'clock we started at 10 a.m thinking <laughs> it might take all day and then i had this media conference scheduled at three for the top and i'm like oh my god like i'm gonna show up and nobody's gonna be there and then so we started talking and i'm like well i can't i can't climb to the top and wait there because i'm gonna show up and not even gonna be out of breath and like um you know i want to be sweating out of breath when i finish for the media it's weird <laughs> to make things look so we sat in the there's middle. a performer in you yeah uh -huh. that's right yeah yeah so so we sat in the middle um you know for hours and told jokes and uh waited for 45 minutes before the the conference was scheduled and pounded up their last last half uh, so i could show up looking tired and sweaty so it really <laughs> so took you an hour regret. and a half okay yeah but my one regret to this day is that like i think i could have done it twice and, and i wish now that i had um sort of gone to the top taking the elevator back down and did it twice. And I wouldn't have told anybody, to, but just for myself, if I could have said, yeah, I did it twice. Well, that um, story probably would have gotten out there too. Like, I think we saw him going to the elevator and 
you know, wondering if there's a Rosie Ruiz moment or something like that. Like, is this guy just riding the elevator to the top? How's it working? <laughs> no, no, I did it twice. You didn't do it twice. Come on. Yeah, that's true. I don't fly under the radar that well, even right in the wheelchair. No, 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 no. I think you would have been fairly conspicuous. What was the, what was the outcome? How did that work out? I mean, you put a lot of work into this. What was the result? What was the conversation? It was, it was good. I mean, we got, um, I think we calculated, we got over a million dollars in value and kind advertising out of this. So the, the message got out. Um, we created a school outreach program that the uh, Variety Village, which is a facility in Toronto that, that caters to people with disabilities. Uh, it's a sports facility. Um, they administered a school outreach program for a number of years uh, with funding from that we raised during that program. So we were able to, and I, and I really think like in situations like that where you're trying to create a, a message, trying to make social change happen, it has to happen at, through education and it has to happen with kids. Like it's the only chance we have. You and I aren't changing our minds, but a whole lot right now, right? Like we're setting No, we're kids. jaded and old and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. 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 So you got to go, you got to educate, you got to educate kids. And, and so we, you know, we broadcast the message, uh, but we delivered it specifically to kids as well. So hopefully it made some small difference. How does that work? Right. Cause you're talking about accessibility, right. Improving accessibility, which I'm guessing is really more on the opportunity side of things. Like don't deny people an opportunity or don't make these assumptions, which is part of, I mean, you're fairly iconoclast, right? Uh, I, I think that that word might fit. And, uh, and so, so I think that, that, that part of it is, is breaking that perception, you know, breaking that, that facade that people have. But, but then there's the other side of like, well, but nobody else is going to climb 1776 steps, you know, I mean, it's like, it's this, you're, you're an outlier on the other end, as, as the super crip kind of thing. And how does how, how, how do you reconcile that? And, and how are you leveraging your celebrity to, to, to benefit other people? Yeah. And that's actually, that's a really, really pertinent issue is that like, and that was one of the things that the, one of the less, or I guess a negative outcome uh, that happened from the climb, like even friends of mine years later would be like, Oh, you know, we just, we're, we're going to go to this restaurant. And it's got stairs, but you climbed the CN tower. So of course you can get up the, I don't like that. It's not the point. <laughs> um, I don't want to have to do it. Yeah. Right. So, but, there, but there's also, you know, the community and they were right um, that, you know, this idea of, a, you know, in the context of a highly able person within the context of disability doing something that probably no other person could do. And, you know, it was just because of my, specific disability the fact that i was in shape from training for so many years i had a technical background like everything came together that i could do this climb um but it it, it may not have it, it, there was a message that got communicated that was not necessarily the best one for the disability community in general and i think if nothing else and for what it's worth it, it really made me more alive to that issue uh, and so in, in subsequent years i was a little more aware of that issue um, but yeah there was a lot of comments that came back to me saying you know you're and then the term super crypt got thrown around a lot uh, you know and it's and it's funny like it's it's tough because and i've always tried you know i've always taken the position whenever I'm, I'm working on accessibility and trying to bring as many people with different disabilities to the table because i don't know any more than a person who doesn't have a disability what a blind person needs or you know 
know, a person who's deaf or hard of hearing, or, you know, I don't understand those disabilities any better than, uh, you know, I understand my own disability. And so, you know, you really need to make sure that those voices that, with the experiential understanding of you know, these situations and specific disabilities are heard and have a voice too. And so that was one thing just in terms of personal growth, you know, that negative effect uh, helps me to understand that a little bit better. It, I always find that that's one of the challenges too, because you don't want to grade the whole world, right? Like let's, let's just smooth everything out. We'll, we'll pave everything. Everything will be perfect. I mean, there, some of the imperfections in our lives are, are really ultimately, and the imperfections in our world are, are some of what make it, make it beautiful too. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, you can't make everything, you know, accessible and what's accessible to one person isn't accessible to another. And that's part of the problem with this. Uh, you know, like people say, Hey, is, is this place accessible? It's like, for some people it is, <laughs> you know, it's never accessible for everybody. Uh, and so just figuring out where that line is and where that stick in the mud is, is one of the biggest problems in addressing accessibility issues. But it's also, it gets to more of a universal type of issue too, doesn't it? I mean, it's like, it's a human condition kind of thing. Not everything fits every, every human being either, right? I mean, it's, can you expand this or have you tried to expand this to, to a more universal kind of message that it's not us against them as opposed to it's like, hey, we're, we're all in this together, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, more and more, you know, I'm sort of subscribing to the, you know, we went through, you know, the, the medical model of disability that, you know, is subscribed to by, especially in the early days, the IPC. And then there's a social model of disability that says that, you know, disability is a construct and that we can, you know, by making societal changes, we can eliminate disability, which I really don't think is the case. You know, like it's, I'm never going to be able to, uh, you know, go across a field with big ruts in it, you know, without specific equipment to help me. Um, although you did that one time up a mountain, I think. Um, <laughs> I did have some fairly specific equipment. Yeah, you know, so so you know, you you know, as a, better than anyone probably that you know the equipment really can make a big difference. But you needed a team of people helping you, and so there are things that I'm always going to need people to help me. And that I think goes to your message that we're in this together because there's things that I can help people with uh, as well. Um, and so if we recognize that and, and, and just recognize this social contract that we have, uh, I think that gets us a lot of the way there. I think so. I think it's, I think for me, it's one of the things that I look at and I've done a lot of thinking on this. I mean, obviously you and I are put into a position where, where we didn't ask to join this group and, and you become, a, you become an advocate for a group, a group you didn't want to join. And, and trying to figure out how does that work? How do I, how do I reconcile it on, in terms of who, who I am and who I want to be and, 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 and all of these things. And, and, and so, so I try to look at, at what do we, what do we share? You know, I think that, that so often with change, we look at it and go, oh, well, you have to recognize me for who I am. And none of us like to be told what to do or told that we're wrong. So even if it makes sense to your point, why talk to kids versus adults, like adults are going, yeah, I'm not going to, no, sorry, that doesn't fit my, the way that I think about the world. So you must be wrong and, and trying to figure out how to make that work. But 
I think we're in the position where we've had to adapt an equipment. You mentioned equipment and after you retired, you went and, and tried to bait, make a, make a better mousetrap really. Right. I mean, a better wheelchair. Yeah, we started. So when I was retired, when I was getting close to the end of my career, I realized I needed to have some kind of a, you know, exit strategy. And so uh, my former business partners, we've, we've both since moved on from this company, but uh, my former business partner came to me with an idea um, to build a, an adjustable wheelchair. And it was for people who had, you know, were newly disabled, had, had recent injuries and didn't really know how they wanted to sit in their chairs, what configuration they needed. How important is that to, to figure out how to sit, how you're most comfortable or most performance oriented? Well, it, it, it's incredibly important. I mean, and I always try to draw the parallel for people. Like it's the same as a pair of shoes. If your shoes don't fit, you can still, you know, or, or soccer boots, you know, if your soccer boots are two sizes too big, you're still playing soccer. You're just not having a whole lot of fun doing it. Right? <laughs> and you're not going to score too many goals. So it's not like you're not, you know, if the, if your boots are too big, you can still get around in them. If your wheelchair is too big, you can still get around in them. You're just, it's not maximizing your efficiency. and You're not going to have a whole lot of fun. And so we tried to use a lot of the technology. So, but, but I think there's something with wheelchairs that, that you're risking health issues too, right? I mean, the other attendant issues where, your posture can change, which then you can you can start ending up with you know kyphosis, you know these kinds of things. You can end up bending of the uh, of the spinal cord. You can end up with pressure sores. You can do a variety of other things. Plus, just the the comfort of being around. And how, what's the objective to fit a wheelchair? I think you're exactly right. And, and the other thing is that those attendant issues change over time, right? So what's what's working for someone in week one? post-injury versus month one versus year one and then five years down the road are often entirely different things. And so you've got this uh, nexus of funding issues, attendant issues that, that affect you physically, your mental well-being and being able to move around as best you can and then change over time that at the time of injury, nobody can predict which way that's going to go. And so what we tried to do is create a, an adjustable chair that would be reconfigurable over time so that, and it wasn't going to be, you know, a high performing chair for someone who's been in a chair for 20 years, but for a newly injured person uh, who didn't know what they needed, that was sort of the, the intent just to get people off on the right track and, and make sure that they were able to at least experiment to see what would work best for them. Yeah. And like for me, I had, I had my accident at 20 years old. My first wheelchair was 16 inches wide, which was kind of the standard. And, and some of the message was, well, you're going to grow into it. And I had really, I had stopped growing. At least I hoped I had stopped growing. I, I'd stopped growing vertically, at least hopefully not, not horizontally. But my chair now is 14 inches wide. And when you look at that and you say, okay, why would you want, why would you want something that's that narrow? And you want it to fit you like your clothing. You want it to respond as you respond, but also the narrowest doorways in every house that you go into are the bathrooms. And you don't want to have to get on the floor to get into the bathroom. So, so you're doing a great service to these people and, and letting them figure out and play with on a, on a relatively easy, you know, it's not like they have to have an engineering degree to be able to 
to be able to, to set their chair up, to set their everyday chair up. Yeah, we tried to make the, the adjustments happen in as simple a way as possible. The, the, neither, we, we started two companies. One was called Marvel and one was called Icon. And neither one of them were, were very successful for a, a variety of reasons. But the industry, part of it was that the industry just really didn't understand this idea of adjustability. And previous attempts had been made to make things adjustable, but they had been poorly executed. And so they would tend to come loose and, and things like that. And people in the industry just were not ready to accept that, you know, we can have this adjustability. And, and we always kept trying to point out to them that like, you know, your bike is entirely adjustable and it doesn't rattle loose. You know, your car is adjusts, it's got tons of moving parts and bolts and nuts and it doesn't rattle loose. So there's, there's a way to do it. Um, and none of our chairs ever rattled loose, but the, the industry just wasn't ready to accept it. And, and again, I think this goes back maybe to a point you made earlier where, you know, I was sort of the face of the company and I was this high performing athlete and people just assumed that I was making a chair for high performance and, and athletics. And it wasn't, it was the other end of the spectrum and, and people just weren't grasping that, you know, this was a chair for people who had just, just, just injured themselves and, and we're still trying to figure things out. Yeah. This isn't a sports car. This is an everyday utility car. You were up against the big boys though too, right? I mean, the thing is the industry is dominated by gigantic companies and, and, and a lot of it's pretty cookie cutter, right? That it's just, they're just, they're just producing widgets. And so you guys had to be on the, on the edge of innovation, didn't you? Yeah. And there was, you know, I'm out of the industry now, so I can be honest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there was a, there was a lot of really dirty, dirty pool going on. Like, like we would show up to, uh, in services with, you know, at rehab centers and we talked to the therapists that were prescribing authorities and they'd say, Oh, we got, we were told you guys went out of business. And we're like, who told you that? And there would be reps from other companies that were competing against our product. And, you know, we didn't have eight different things. You know, we didn't have a, a tilt in space and, you know, all these other different types of uh, products that, that would give other manufacturers sort of a, one-stop shop lineup that they could provide and so we were really relying on this one product and, and it was a very niche product as well and then we were facing all kinds of really sort of bad behavior from established players in the industry and, and not necessarily from corporate front office or you know the corporate offices but people on the on the ground the reps and then people like that were it was, it was disappointing in a lot of ways the people who are trying to make their quotas exactly yeah that you are you are challenging their quotas or providing competition, and you're the new people on the block, and and so what ended up happening? You ended up selling both companies, didn't you, or or getting acquired, or how did that work? Yeah, the first company ended uh, quite badly. We had um, uh, we were in partnership with a, a bicycle company called Cervelo, and they got into some financial difficulties uh, and tried to take over the company. Well, did take over the company and tried to flip it and tried to sell it to fund some of the, the, to bridge some of the financial gaps that they had created in their bike company. And so as soon as they seized control of the company, uh, they cut Christian, uh, Christian Bag was my business partner. They cut us loose um, and tried to run the company. And as soon as the industry found out that the two guys in wheelchairs <laughs> were, were no longer part of the wheelchair company, it just didn't go that well for them. Um, so we immediately started another company called Icon um, that was more successful. 
but still didn't really uh, didn't break through that glass ceiling in terms of the established players in the market. So um, we eventually started making other products, um, including an electric bike. And then Christian and I decided to part ways. I, I decided I wanted to exit the industry entirely. And uh, I went to law school about three years ago. Uh, he's still running a company that makes electric bikes called uh, Bowhead. And so you went to law school and you were hopefully going to pass the bar this summer, right? Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> and you'll be 50 in November? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I, I think if I'd left it even another couple of years, it would have been too late. Um, and to be candid, I wish I had done this 10 years ago. It's, um, you know, it's really something that uh, fits my personality. It's law is something I've always been interested in. Um, I seem, at, up till now, I seem to be relatively good at it. Didn't, didn't fail any of my courses. So that's a good sign. Is it like you like to win or that you like to argue? Well, it can be both, Chris. It can really be both. <laughs> um, you know what it is? Like in everything I've done, and we've touched on this in the last you know, hour or so, is that you know, when I was racing, I was trying to use the platform to help people um, to broadcast this idea that, you know, disability disability rights are human rights and those are important and then when I made this you know created these companies I was trying to help people to get into the best chairs they could have and, and it's the same thing now like my clients right now come to me with issues and problems and I try to help them and, and that's really what law is it's just you know if you're a good lawyer all you want to do is help people to resolve their issues and problems and, and help them lead the best lives that they can so um, you know my direction is going to be in constitutional litigation and, and, and uh, human rights uh, as well as some you know this labor employment law and, and you know areas where I think I can I can help people um, and so I think that's the consistent thread that runs throughout my time but I do like to argue you're starting a career at 50 that most people start in their 20s you're joining a big law firm right I mean you've gone to a great great law school uh, and and now you're uh, so I mean, Osgood Hall is 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 one of the best, and and it's old, like this is this is the kind of school that you would say that when you're leaving college, like this is the direction that I'm going to go. So it's kind of like you've stay, taken a step back to a certain extent in recreating where you would go from your college step, like to the best school you can, and then joining a you know a 200 200 person uh, law firm in the middle of the financial district. Seven hundred. 700. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, apparently I was looking at the wrong place on the website, but like, this yeah, is, it's, it's, this is the corporate, you're in the middle of the financial district in, in Toronto and, and, you know, are they giving you the sleeping bag and the cot when, when you, when you start or how, how is that working? Are you, are you going to be billing all those hours? And well, it's funny, you know, so I worked, I worked last summer in the, in my, between my second and third years and I was doing 80, you know, 78 hour weeks which I was doing in, in my, with the wheelchair companies anyway. So working those hours isn't foreign to me. Um, and when Christian came to me with the idea to start a company back in uh, 2006, I had actually written the, the LSAT, the entry exam for law schools, uh, and, and I'd done well enough to, to probably get in. Uh, and he came to me just when I was about to start my applications and, and gave me this you know, pitched me this idea of starting a company and I decided to do that instead of going to law school. So it's not, it's not a new idea. Um, 
but you know, it was definitely getting to the point where I needed to do it, um, or it wasn't going to happen. The, um, and it's been fascinating, like getting back into this environment of learning after so many years, you know, and, and being surrounded by young people, uh, who are clearly smarter than I am, um, has, has been, you know, it's been, it's honestly, it's been very humbling. Um, well, you're out of it to a certain extent, right? You haven't been in school. And so there's just a different mode of thinking. You continue to read, you continue to write, you continue to do these things in your adult life, but there's something entirely different about being in school and just sort of the momentum of it. And I never, ever, ever read the way I've read for law school. Like it's just, it's bonkers. Um, and I'll never, yeah, it's really interesting. When I first got in, I was like, wow, this is happening. It's, it's great. But there's this one moment where I went to my first class and I had my laptop and I had my pad of paper and I didn't know if I was going to take notes on the laptop or on the pad of paper and I was trying to decide and, and the lecture started and I was like, oh wow, this is, I'm at law school, this, this is so great. And then the, 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 the instructor, the professor said something literally noteworthy and, and everyone started typing on their keyboards. Just click, click, and, click, click. Yeah. yeah. And last time I was in school, we didn't have laptops like they didn't exist and so it hadn't dawned on me that that was the case and there's this moment where this noise rose and it was like locusts you know like like just this, the tapping of 500 people on this on a keyboard at the same time and that noise really was the the thing that crystallized it for me where i was like what the hell are you doing man like this is actually happening so yeah it's just this weird foreign thing that you know, we didn't, like, it had been so long, we didn't have laptops last time I went to school. <laughs> what was their impression of you, the other, uh, the other students, like looking at you going, going, who's, who's, whose father, whose grandfather is this here? Well, I just had, so I just had a conversation with a person who's a good friend of mine now. And she was like, the first three weeks, she kept like, what the hell is this other professor doing spying on us? Like, why is he sitting in the middle of the class spying on us? This is bullshit. Like, they shouldn't let other professors into it. And she just, like, assumed that I was a professor. And now, and when I was working last summer, I'd go into these, like, arbitration meetings or uh, client meetings, and, you know, everyone would be deferring to me and looking to me like I was, like, I had any idea what was going on, and I knew what was happening. And I'm like, no, that, that she's, the, she's the senior lawyer. I'm just... I'm a student. I'm just I'm the 28 down. year olds, the senior, the senior lawyer here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that too, like, so, you know, I'm taking, I'm taking direction from people who could be my kids, right? Like, like I'm taking direction from 25, 26 year olds that are brilliant and genius. And, and I think, you know, having, I didn't retire till I was 28 or 38. And so I was still in contact with young people, um, you know, teenagers and, and, and you know, early twenties. And so I, I'm comfortable dealing with young people, um, but for a lot of people who are, you know, pushing 50, uh, taking direction for someone who's 26, 27 is a real gut check. Um, you know, I've been able to do it and I have no problem doing it, but it, it's an interesting process. I would, I would imagine, was it, was it difficult for you? You went from competing to, to Marvel, which I'm assuming is a bit of a nod to, to your, your comic book, uh, uh, enjoyment, uh, I'm assuming, and, uh, and and you did that at Marvel and Icon and and kind of 
did those things. And then now, now you're actually sort of starting, starting your career, what will be the rest of your career, most likely, because even like as an athlete, you know, at some point, you're done. You are not going to retire from an athlete from being an athlete, unless you're Heinz Fry, I think, from right. being an athlete and 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 just to you you're, that's it, you're done. I mean, Heinz Heinz probably a guy who raced with us, Swiss guy who who is still going at like 65 years old or something like that and still beating many, yeah. many people in the world. But and and then with the companies, you probably knew that that, that was a relatively short-term kind of thing, that it wasn't necessarily, but now now getting into this, this is the full time. Was it difficult? To, to leave sport and then to, to essentially find what you're going to do with the rest of your life. For me, it wasn't, um, you know, even when we started the companies, like I was doing all of the legal stuff, like I was running the business side of the companies. And so, and it was a highly regulated industry. So it's, it's, it's medical products. And so I had to learn regulatory law and I was, we were hiring people and so I had to learn employment law and, and it was bootstrapping. So we couldn't afford, you know, a lot of lawyers in the early days. Um, and, and it really just kind of gelled and solidified this idea that, you know, I'd already written the LSATs and I was doing this, you know, this entrepreneur effort. Um, but I was doing all the legal stuff and it was what I really enjoyed. So, you know, I am new to the legal profession. Um, but I've done a lot of legal work, both as a client, um, and, and as a entrepreneur where I know the issues and I think, you know, going, and I've already seen it where going into some meetings and things like that, like I just, the maturity helps, you know, and, and I don't get sidetracked in the same way that some of my younger colleagues do. And I don't get pushed around um, the same way that some of my colleagues do. Like I, I did, a, I've, I've appeared on a couple of matters. Uh, one where the judge assumed that I was, experienced counsel and I had to, had to make sure she understood that I wasn't. Um, but, but, you know, like I, I've, I've done things in my first year that most new lawyers couldn't because I've had life experience that, that helps. Um, and especially in negotiations, like I, I can, I can talk about this cause I was acting in my own, in, uh, acting on my own, um, uh, representing yourself as an athlete. No, I was representing myself as in, in terms of my business, um, right. but I had to negotiate with a very experienced counsel, um, and so we hammered at a deal. It wasn't uh, friendly, uh, but at the end of it, he, he came up and said, "You know, you did a really good job." And that was, you know, just let because he knew that I was going into law, and so it was a really interesting thing where he was hammering me as hard as he could. Then when it was over, he came over and gave me advice in terms of how to negotiate in a legal sense. But he also said that he could tell that I'd done negotiations before. So like 25 year olds just don't just haven't had the time to do that. Um, so it is a new, it's a new career for me, but it's, it's based on a lot of a good foundation. I think. But pointing you in that direction is confirmation in a lot of ways too, right? That you're, you're going in the right direction, that it's what you want to do and, and what you probably should do. Yeah. And, and I can tell, you know, like I'm old enough now that I, that I don't do things that, that I don't want to do or, you know, unless I have to. Um, but if, if I can tell when something fits, you know, and, and I think sometimes it's like, like I look at some of my colleagues at school where I'm like, I don't know if you're gonna, if this is going to be you, like it's, you know, maybe, maybe it will be, but um, for me, I just know it's a good fit. I know it's going to work. So, and I think that comes with, you know, experience and age.
what are you looking for in the future? I mean, in some ways you've been writing the same story since you were nine years old, right? And, and what, what is this chapter of that story? What is this uh, iteration of that story look like? What do you want it to look like? Well, I mean, I think I built my, my career, my experience on trying to promote the idea that, you know, like trying to promote human rights and trying to ensure that the rights of people with disabilities uh, are recognized within that context. And at some point you run into a glass ceiling that you can only do so much as an athlete and say, Hey, we, you know, this is the thing to do. We need to pay attention. And, and as a business owner, you can, you know, help to, to lobby and do things like that. But until you have law on your side, you can't really make systemic and permanent change. And so this is the culmination, I think, of my career where I'm going to be able to not, not just say that it's the right thing, uh, but make sure that uh, the right thing is done as well. So, so final question, what is, what is the one skill that you think you will have to develop in order to be really successful? I think I'm going to have to tone down my confidence. Um, one of the big things about law that I found is that if you, you can't fake it, right? Like either, <clears throat> either the law is on your side or it's not. And either the facts are on your side or they're not. And, and, you know, you can pull off some spectacular wins by sleight of hand and by being a, a, a crafty lawyer. This is what we see in the movies and on television and stuff like that, right? Yeah, like that's just, it just doesn't happen in real life. And so, so this idea that you can go in and just be like, oh, I'm going to win this one. It just, it doesn't work that way, right? Like, so, so you have to, so my, my skills in terms of negotiation and trying to resolve things, um, I think have been the one thing I'm working the most on because, you know, in racing, I didn't want to resolve things. I just, wanted, <laughs> I just wanted to win the race. Like, and and the more I could hurt people, the better. And, and, and it was the opposite of resolving things. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Instigator, yeah, I believe, was one of the. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and in business too, like in business, often you can go in and just like you know you can tell people you got the best product in the world, and if they believe you, they're going to buy it, right? And, uh, and then you work to try and make sure that that's the case. But in law, you just can't. You can't fake it. And so sometimes uh, reminds me of judo more than anything. You know, there's a time to resist and there's a time to yield. And understanding when those two moments are happening is, is critical. That's awesome. So tell us when, uh, when, when are you doing the bar? Because uh, uh, thank you for taking two hours out of your day to talk with yeah, us when you should be bar. studying. Yeah, I should be, but um uh, so I write the bar uh, mid-July. There's two sittings. So they, there's two seven-hour tests that are two weeks apart. And then I start work at uh, Faskin in Toronto in uh, probably late August. Everything's a little bit up in the air now with um, with COVID stuff going on. Sure. And we're trying to bring all the exams online instead of in person. So it's, uh, But it'll be mid-July for the bar and late August for work. So you'll actually potentially uh, take the bar at your at your apartment or at your house or whatever? Almost certainly. Yeah. Almost really? Certainly. Yeah, I did. So we did all of the final exams for law school uh, in my living room. You know, it was, it was actually really strange to, you know, I hit send and the last, my last exam 
went off and I was done law school in the middle of my living room. <laughs> wasn't the uh, wasn't the finish I expected, but that is funny. So so Lincoln helped you uh, celebrate. You have a it's I don't know you huge, know like I got, huge love of these guys, right? The, I don't it's know your dog of choice. It. Yeah, well he's a he's a great thing. He's he's sleeping on the couch right here. <laughs> <laughs> So, but I don't know how people with kids are, are doing it, man. Like it's like being trying to concentrate at home is, is very difficult. Um, yeah. So he's, he's about as much distraction as I can handle. <laughs> awesome. Jeff, thank you so much for, for joining us. Good luck in, in writing the bar. Good luck in starting your new career. It seems like you're, you're well suited for it, but that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. So we'll wish you good luck. All right. It was great catching up with you, Chris. Take care. Always a pleasure. Take care. All right. Thanks.